Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard. Hillard is the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community and furthers the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Jeffrey Hillard. I'm going solo on this particular podcast because it's going to be one of my last during my tenure as the writer-in-residence for the Library Foundation. Uh, And uh, what I'm going to do on this particular podcast is share with you uh, one of the most unique projects I've ever worked on, and that is uh, my first young adult slash adult novel that is coming out early September, and first in an ebook edition, and several days later, the print or paperback edition. It has been a robust and colorful and constantly active past year from late September, October 2015 to right now, uh, right on the cusp of September. I can't believe it's really almost been a full year since I've been doing so many activities for the library and doing writing and meeting so many people, so many writers in this city, in this county. Uh, I could never have done this alone. And when I first uh, started the residency, last October, officially at Books by the Banks, I had no idea uh, the amount of behind-the-scenes action um, that would be necessary uh, on my my end in order to really do programs, do readings, um, do workshops. Uh, This is a total team effort, and I am the writer-in-residence. That's my title. But it is, a, it is a full library, full team effort, and I couldn't be more pleased with all of those that I worked with. I'd like to give a shout-out and a special thanks um, to some of those that have really been a great benefit to me and a great help to me throughout the last 11 months. Um, you know, I'd like to thank the Library Foundation first the Library Foundation of the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County, and Missy Dieters, the executive director of the foundation, as well as the Board of Trustees, for putting their trust in me uh, for a full year of uh, helping advance the written word, the literary life, uh, as it springs from the library. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the many librarians and staff members of the public library, including uh, Kim Fender, our executive director of the public library. Uh, My producer for Inside the Writer's Head is Adam Baker. And you hear Adam on the podcast uh, beginning at an end. And I could never have pulled this off without his brilliant wizardry in terms of recording uh, and, and, and editing the recordings. Adam, thank you for every last minute, all your good cheer, um, all the help in getting the flash drives up to Makerspace so that we could save the recordings and get them to you. So, Adam Baker, hats off. I really have loved working with you. Uh, My special thanks, too, to Kate Lawrence, um, who's one of my very direct supervisors in this whole process, and Kate has just been an extraordinary help to me over the last 11 months. 
I thank Angela Hirsch for her immeasurable and 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 unparalleled social media acumen. She is a tremendous social media expert and the public library is so fortunate to have Angela um, blast those tweets, organize promotionals, uh, advance announcements, and do all kinds of great promotion. Thank you, Angela, for everything you've done for me and getting the word out about the podcasts, about my workshops, about my blog posts. Uh, I could not be more happier working with you. It's Sandy Bullock. Thank you, Sandy, so much for posting uh, my blog posts and for editing, for getting things right, for being such a sweetheart on the other end. I uh, also like to thank Ella Mumford of Makerspace. Um, she's the she's the head um, of the Department of Makerspace here, where this podcast is cut. I also want to thank Stacy Johnson and David Siders and Charles Ga- Charles Gable for their help throughout the year too. I'd like to thank in particular. Uh, four men who've really helped me up here in the studio, in the booth, recording, saving the recordings throughout the year, and that is Ed and Drew and Nate and William. You guys, I really appreciate you, and of course, I'll see more of you too. Uh, Thank you also to um, my guests throughout 2016, starting in January. I appreciate the time that my guests put aside to come downtown and to do recording and interviews with me. Um, You can get all of those podcasts. They're all digitized. They're all available going back to January 2016 with Trace Conger, a crime novelist extraordinaire in this city. I'd like to thank the graphic artists in our library system, Uh, the graphic artists who've helped design posters who've designed caricatures, who've helped me get the word out about my poems by creating designs to go with the poems on Valentine's Day and in summer. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Ron White, my colleague and friend at Mount St. Joseph University, and his group, his band, The Amphibians, for absolutely generously contributing uh, a song, an original song, to Inside the Writer's Head Podcasts, uh, and that you hear in our intro and outro music. Thanks, Ron, for that. So today what I'd like to do is pay a little specific attention to my first novel. It's a young adult novel, and it's part of a series I'm going to write And right now, I've conceptualized and actually outlined fairly well five novels in this series. And there's a sixth one that could be written, and I'll wait and see what happens at that point. The first novel's called Shine Out of Bedlam. Shine Out of Bedlam. And it's book one in the Shine in Bedlam series. The second novel... Uh, that I'm starting on now and hope to produce and publish fairly soon is called Shine in Grit City. It will be a shorter novel than the first novel. In fact, the successive novels past the first novel, Shine, will be somewhat shorter uh, so that I'm able to get them out to my readers 
uh, without a whole lot of uh, elongated uh, turnaround time. Um, And that's my plan. But Shine Out of Bedlam is the first novel in the series. And I've started working on Shine Out of Bedlam three years ago. And in that time, I've had to work on and off it. Uh, Not every day because I'm writing poems. I'm, I'm writing essays. I'm writing reviews uh, for both things involving my teaching at Mount St. Joseph University and from things that I'm contracted for or asked to do for maybe magazines. Uh, So the novel has intermittently been put on the back burner, and it's only been within about the last 15 months, 16 months, that I've been going back to it more and more, uh, especially in terms of changes I made some new editing I've done, uh, some fleshing out of this scene or that scene. I've been tinkering with it really for 15 months. And in actuality, I probably could have put this novel out one year ago or even eight months ago, but I chose to still go through some parts of it and make it right, make sure the dialogue was was cut perfectly um, and, and, and done that way. Um, <clears throat> And so that's why it's taken kind of around three years to do it. But I'm very proud of this series. I don't know exactly why I wanted to go young adult, except that I love that genre of young adult literature. And I I love working with kids. I teach college students. I work constantly with high school students and elementary and junior high. I'm always going to schools. Uh, and I have really ramped that going to schools up part um, in my library residency, and I'm very proud to to be doing that. So I, I just think kids are great readers, of course, and I want to hit them as much as possible with the written word. So I think my brain just said, why don't you just write for a young, you know, write for a young adult audience? Although, like with a John Green novel uh, or any other. YA novel, there's an adult component to it, to be sure. You can enjoy it if you're if you're over 17, 18 years old, of course, and you can enjoy it when you're 10 or 11. So I want to read the book description for the novel, and then I'll just add a little more about the novel um, in addition to the description, and then I'll re- I'm going to read two scenes from the novel, and I picked these two scenes out for a reason. Anyway, the book description of Shine Out of Bedlam is this, and this is what will appear on the back cover. It's a blaring 1968 in Bedlam, Ohio. When a warehouse in the small town burns down, a mystery unfolds. 15-year-old Shine Ross is a white, basketball-playing, trumpet-playing teen living in the residentially divided community. Along with his black best friend, Moondog, Shine pursues his flimsy instincts as to who set fire to the empire. In the flamboyant and period-rich YA novel, Shine Out of Bedlam, the lightning-wrought American spectacle known as the 60s soars in its shadows and light. At the center are youth and adults immersed in their ambitions and free spirit. Shine navigates romance, racial drama, and his own family hang-ups. Even as the country searches for its identity, 
the factory town of Bedlam and its teens do the same, and fine they must. Shine's fearlessness emboldens him to search for a prized, lost Amazon parrot, to nail his train-hopping into an art form, and to keep alive his budding relationship with a girl he's known since first grade, even if it means losing his Band-Aid box of cigarettes. It's all a heated yet awfully often darkly comic mix with an adventurous boy at its center. What would you do if you were Shine Ross in such a place? You face Bedlam head on and keep living. So that's the book description of the novel. You can also read another excerpt of the novel uh, at my website, Jeffrey Hillard, one word, dot com, Jeffrey Hillard dot com. And that excerpt that's up on my website is a different excerpt from very early in the novel than what I'm going to read today. So you got a kind of idea from the book description of what the novel's going to encompass. And the novel, the, the fictional town, little community of Bedlam is surely based on a community which I know fairly well. And the events of 1968 um, are, are fairly uh, well ensconced in my mind. Uh, I've done great research for this novel. A number, a number of the incidents that occur uh, did take place to some degree, although I've taken some liberties with those, with those events in the novel. But memory and history do play a role uh, in the novel. There are essentially four sort of layers or subplots. The main plot is that this warehouse called the Empire did burn down, and Shine and his friend Moondog uh, are just suspicious of certain individuals. They they're getting they Shine lives next to, across the street from a cop, and they're quite close. Uh, he let Shine swim in his pool. Um, they've formed they've they formed kind of a familial bond, and he looks up to this cop, and this cop shares things, but in a in a very shallow, vague way. But getting information from this cop, what he does get, is some shady stuff. I mean, it could be arson, and it seems like it was. And so a 15-year-old kid has these great inklings. He has these, like I call it, flimsy instincts. And so for most of the novel, for a lot of the novel, Shine um, is kind of thinking about and, and nosing around and wondering possibly who did this. Um, and that's that sort of forms one sphere of the novel. Now, under that branch of three or four other fairly recurring subplots, one of them is that, in fact, because this is a racially divided community, it just so happens that several individuals in the Black Panther Party are moving east or they're traveling east. And a legendary member of the Black Panther Party has scheduled an event in the town of Bedlam. And he's coming down to speak to that 
African-American contingent, the African-American residents that live on, quote-unquote, the other side or the west side of Bedlam. And that has um, white people on the north side of Bedlam and, and elsewhere um, a, a little on edge. They don't know. They've seen news of the Black Panthers. They understand that a young man, 16 years old, in Oakland, California, has been recently shot by Oakland police. That was national news in 1968. So you have a, a legendary figure of the Black Panther Party coming in toward the end of summer to deliver a presentation. So you have an aura over this novel of edginess, of people not sure what to expect. It had never happened ever in this community. Um, it had probably not happened in the larger context of what's going on in Bedlam, either outside in the suburbs. A second sphere or a second layer or subplot is that this is a novel of romance, too, and Shine really likes a girl named Cynthia, and she likes him, so we follow that developing relationship. Shine's sister Allison is also um, involved with an individual, so we follow that relationship. Uh, another layer is that um, very early in the novel, a, like you heard here in the description, a prized Amazon parrot escapes. It belongs to Shine's uncle and aunt. So throughout the novel, there's a hunt for this beautiful, beautiful bird, this parrot. Um, and another prong or layer in the novel is that um, Shine and, and Moondog uh, also do a great deal of train hopping which was done somewhat in my day, you might say. Um, and it was done at Liberty. It was easy to do. Um, and so you have, you have a number. It's a multi-layered novel. It's a tapestry. Um, and I have um, really good feelings about it, of course. So I'm going to now read uh, two scenes. And in fact, this first scene that I'm going to read has to do with the train hopping. And Shine and Moondog, this is about one-third of the way through the novel. Shine and Moondog um, are also fascinated with what we used to call back in 1968, 70, and there, therein. We used to call them hobos. Um, where I grew up... Uh, there was a prevalence of them. Um, I used to find camps uh, down by a creek uh, and down by railroad tracks. Um, my friends and I, we knew um, that they stayed around in that area because trains were so common. We had, it was a factory town where I grew up, and Bedlam happens to be a factory town too. So this first scene I'm going to read is Shine and, and Moondog hopping a train. Um, it's one of their it's one of their early ventures, and they meet someone. After he picked up Moondog, 
The boys headed past the far edge of Garland Park where they waited at their favorite train hopping spot. Most every train coming through Bedlam had to stop near the factories, unload material, and pack and haul new equipment. It took several miles after Bedlam stop before a train picked up decent speed. Trains nearing the spot just past the park crept slowly. Easy to hop a boxcar. Shine felt the rickety movement of the train rolling forward. The boxcar rattled. The boys sat straight and braced their backs. The wheels churned. Sweltering heat rose from the tracks. Shine imagined how much concentration it must have taken to build train tracks on which 50 boxcars moved fluidly for hundreds of miles. Moondog tossed a mashed bag of potato chips to Shine. He let it lay on the floor. Brought two bags, Moondog said. They're still good even though I had them crammed in my pockets. Shine was so busy settling himself and daydreaming that minutes passed before he or Moondog detected a lumpy blanket in the corner. An impressive lump, more like a grotesque bump. Shine caught a whiff of onions and gasoline coming from that direction. The blanket moved. Moondog scooted closer to Shine. What do, you, what do you think, he said. Not now, quiet, Shine said. They watched the blanket. Shine stiffened when he heard, when a head abruptly rose from it. A man whose oily hair was matted against his eyebrows peered at them. The man squinted. He uttered words that were unclear. Shine's first thought was that this was, in fact, a living, breathing hobo that legend affirms will ride boxcars all over the country, roaming from city to city. This is the scavenger. This is the ghost-like person he and his friends talked about. His second thought frightened him. Are he and Moondog in danger? Would they even survive the trip to Hamilton and back? Shine had a third thought. Did he really make a bad mistake hopping this boxcar? The man threw off a corner of his blanket. He kept his legs covered. His shirt was unbuttoned. One arm sported the tattoo of an arrow wide as a belt. It went from his elbow to his shoulder. The onion's gasoline smell remained. Where are you headed? The man said. Hamilton, Shine said. Where are you headed? Moondog said. The man stared, saying nothing. When he kept tilting his head as if he had trouble seeing the boys, Shine thought that to say little would be their best defense until the train slowed enough, slowed to maybe 10 miles an hour, for him and Moondog to leap out, hit the ground, and run for it, at least several hundred yards without looking back. Shine remembered he once heard that a hobo would steal anything. We don't have anything, Shine said. I didn't ask, man said, breaking his silence. He mumbled something else undetectable. Where are you going? Moondog said again. The man just looked at him. He lit his cigarette he pulled from underneath the blanket. The blanket had a base of pink tarnished by a grimy sheen that turned it yellowish. 
I may have something for yous, the man said. You got something? Shine said, his hands sweat. He realized Moondog had a small screwdriver, a little larger than a toothpick. Moondog poked his leg with it so Shine would know. You's coming from Bedlam, the man said. Yeah, Shine said. You know what? What? Here's the thing, the man said. You got a candy bar? Nope, Moondog said. We ate it. The man snickered. It was as if he heard a joke yet sought permission to laugh at it. Harsh chuckle. Damn, the man said. I ain't ate yet. Oh, uh, well. Here's chips, Shine said. He flung his crumpled bag of chips on the man's blanket and he opened it immediately. You don't know I'm like a seer of things, the man said. I kind of see things differently, you could say, you know, like in dreams. Or like when I'm looking at something really, really carefully, you know, eyeballing it. Shine had no idea where the conversation was going. The man finished the chips before he spoke anymore. The boys were captivated. In Shine's colorful imagining, the man could have leaped from the blanket and held a knife to his throat. Yet this man just sat under a blanket in real summer heat. The arrow tattoo seemed larger than his whole body. See, I reckon I just know things, the man said. I reckon I'm just like one of them prophets. You, you want to know something while we're aboard this here train? What's that, Shine said. Let me tell, the man said. How, how about that fire, that big old fire that burned down that factory back in Bedlam? Huh? One a few weeks ago, flames blazing all over heaven. We saw that fire, Shine said. It happened just, just about in my friend's backyard. He nodded to Moondog. What's it about? Well, the man said, I done saw in my mind someone starting that fire. I don't believe it started by itself, and I ain't believing it was something exploded in there. I got something else in my mind. Shine's thinking encompassed so much territory now, even to the point of his wondering whether this man set the fire. How could Shine know? The man stayed silent as he finished his cigarette. He lifted his legs under the blanket and repositioned himself in his corner. Moondog wadded his empty chips bag. The constant clang of train cars disrupted Shine's thinking. Way I seize it, the man said was that someone young set that there fire. I'd say like in high school, you know that age? You know a lot of kids in that high school. I don't. I done quit when I was 14. I up and left. They never come looking for me neither. Someone set that fire, Shine said. Someone in the neighborhood, the man said, pointing to Moondog. Sir, he said to Moondog, I hate to spell that out about your neck of the woods, but, sir, I got clarity. You might even know a person who said it, that they're fire. You might even know a person. Yep. I'm just real glad it wasn't you. You're too busy hopping trains. I wasn't around anyway, Moondog said. Who'd want to burn down a job place like the Empire? People work there. 
Someone done dead, the man said, lighting another cigarette. As the train slowed, Cheyenne could see the outskirts of the sprawling General Motors factory in Hamilton. Yous know what else, the man said. That's a good campground fire me and my friends make back in the park in Bedlam, ain't it? Huh? Yous like those campfires, huh? During the few seconds, Shine turned and looked at Moondog. The man had rolled up his blanket and said goodbye. I mean, he, leap, he leaped out of the boxcar. Shine got up and peered outside, watching the hobo roll on the ground and then stand up and shake his stiff legs one at a time. Well, thanks for listening. That was one scene early on in the novel involving their train hopping. Now, the next scene that I'm going to read here um, deals with a scene, <clears throat> deals with a chapter and a scene, I'd say about a, a, between a third and a half of the way through the novel. And it involves Shine's sister, Allison Ross, and her friend becoming a boyfriend, Ulysses Weasel. He's Moondog's brother, ironically. Uh, Moondog and Ulysses are close. And it just so happens that Ulysses is a really highly well thought of young man in high school. Um, he's got great athletic ability, but really doesn't care about athletics. He's just very much focused on school, focused on, on having a good time. He's just really a sweetheart. He has just a sterling reputation, and he does like Allison Ross. And there's an earlier scene in the novel where I bring about uh, the um, initiation of, of when they first sort of saw, saw eye to eye. But this in this scene, their being together, their togetherness, begins to get ramped up. And this is 1968. Remember, this novel takes place in 1968. And Allison is a kind of fearless person, although she's sensible. She herself has a great reputation. She's very smart, one of the smartest students in her class. She's 17. Ulysses is 17. And she makes no bones, at least to herself and to Shine, about the fact that she does like Ulysses. And she likes the fact that he's a real gentleman, um, an extraordinary gentleman to her. And they have fun together. They can talk. So they make a date to go to a place called Peewee Valley. Peewee Valley was an actual, literal, very small amusement park in a suburb of Cincinnati called Redding. And in the novel, Redding is fictionalized as a place called Mount Rellington. But I keep the name of Peewee Valley the same. So this particular scene has Allison and Ulysses at Peewee Valley. On a hot and cloudy day after Ulysses picked up Allison in mid-afternoon, 
and they quenched their thirst with Dr. Pepper. She bought from Hannaford's store. Ulysses drove to Mount Rellington. When they approached the intersection that led to the highway overpass in the direction of Mount Rellington, the couple noticed a man and a woman preparing to tape to a telephone pole a large poster promoting the Black Panther rally in West Bedlam, August the 1st. The rally. The woman wore thick-rimmed sunglasses in spite of an undetectable sun. She held a wide spool of tape as the man cut about a foot of it. She tiptoed, raising the poster as high as she could on the pole as he ran tape around the border. Allison and Ulysses could see a photograph of the face of the Black Panther Party member H. Rap Brown on the poster. H. Rap Brown's face comprised most of it, his large eyes staring toward the highway. In an arc above his face were the letters on August 1st at Drake School, Cedar Avenue, 6 p.m., H. Rap Brown. That was the near future. Today, Allison and Ulysses planned to spend a few hours at Peewee Valley, a suburban monument to leisure and relaxation and an amusement park. Peewee Valley was open only on weekends. It provided a spread of 14 small rides, especially for children. Still, with the park's largest ride, a fast-motion, head-jarring contraption whose two caged cars swung 20 feet in the air, around in a circle. A child had to be at least four feet tall and ride it with an adult. And the adult's knees were still cramped inside the car. The parking lot of Pee Wee Valley, packed fender to fender with cars, cast a sheen of multicolored metal. Allison pulled the Caprice next to a Dodge. Pee Wee Valley, as small a park as its name suggested, sat on the far edge of Mount Rellington. In its simple square of space, the rides burst into view as one drove down Rellington Avenue. One strip of ride tickets for all of Pee Wee Valley's 12 rides costs $2. Ulysses put four crumpled dollar bills in Allison's hand. At the ticket window, the teen looked to be Allison's age of 17. You go to Mount Rellington, Allison asked her. Ulysses stood around the corner from the ticket window, stepped toward Allison to see who she was talking to. Right, the girl said. Do I know you? No, no, we go to Bedlam. Allison tugged on Ulysses' shirt to bring him a little closer. He's in my grade. We'll be seniors. I just love Pee Wee Valley. Allison had her moxie. The girl in the ticket booth glanced at Ulysses when she said, I'm a senior too. Well, okay, I hope you guys have a good time writing. Then, as if startled, she quickly looked down at their ticket drawer. We'll do that, Allison said. They heard thunder. Both looked up at the darkening and shifting clouds. It happened that quickly, like large, the clouds like large bits of grayish broken plates. They made their way toward the merry-go-round, Allison's favorite. 
In spite of the threat of rain, the park was crowded and people crisscrossed in front of the couple. In the line for the merry-go-round, kids clung onto the chains that formed the path to the ride, flipping their small bodies against it, watching it swing wildly. Parents playfully grabbed their kids, trying to keep them off the chains. As Allison and Ulysses stood in line, their arms touching, she rubbed her fingers on his hand. He rubbed her fingers in return. She wove her fingers inside his hand. He squeezed her hand. You want to try this here, out in the big open? Ulysses said. Try what? Ulysses whispered in her ear, touching my hand. You're touching my hand, she said. Just then a little girl poked Ulysses in the arm. Do you live in Mount Rellington? she said, looking up at him. No, Bedlam, West Bedlam. He put an emphasis on West with an earshot of her mother. Are you riding this ride, the girl said, pointing to the merry-go-round. The child's mother, with hand on her shoulders and a sheepish look at Allison and Ulysses, spun her around and back in line. When they got off the ride, they felt light drops of rain nearly mist thin. The sky appeared prepared to open up. What's next? Ulysses said. Allison grabbed his arm and they headed for the go-kart track. They noticed a number of families, especially those with small children, darting for the parking lot. The couple was not intimidated by the raindrops, and the go-kart attendant allowed them to race their two small motor-powered cars seven laps before he held up one finger, signaling their last lap. When the rain overwhelmed the ride attendants enough that, in unison, they shut down. They shut each one down. Allison and Ulysses were about to get into a Ferris wheel car. There was no one else in line. The attendant looked tired and bored. He pulled the bill of his Pee Wee Valley cap down further to ward off rain. His shirt was soaked. His gym shoes were muddy from the dirt path to the Ferris wheel. Ulysses noticed a girl about four or five years old standing by herself between the Ferris wheel and the bumper car ride. It rained harder. Allison and Ulysses paid no attention to the rain. In fact, they were laughing when Ulysses rushed over to the girl. Where's your mom, he said, squinting into the cloudburst. I don't know, she yelled. She covered her face. I'm wet. I'm getting wetter. Well, let's go, Ulysses said and without hesitating led her by the hand to the ticket booth. The girl was still inside. A huge awning framed the booth. The three stood under the awning. Ulysses banged on the ticket door. This little girl's lost, he said, after the employee opened the door. She produced two big umbrellas. Two people could walk under them. The cloudburst now started to thin. Ulysses and the little girl were under one umbrella and Allison and the ticket girl under another. Heading to the parking lot, where less than ten cars remained even, they saw a woman run toward them. Her rain-soaked hair actually bounced. I couldn't see you in the rain, the woman said, holding out her arms toward her little girl. You walked away from the merry-go-round. I ran after your brothers who ran after your father to the car. 
It was that cloudburst, honey. Mom, I'm, I'm wet, but they helped me, the girl said. I was by the bumper cars. It was just drizzling now. Thank you, the woman said to Ulysses. Jittery and still dazed from losing sight of her daughter, she looked at Allison and the ticket girl under the umbrella. I was looking in the wrong place for her. I couldn't see squatting that downpour. She's not to go to the bumper cars ever, and there she was. One second, that girl can disappear. The girl's mother now had both arms wrapped around her. With the rain dwindling, Ulysses folded his umbrella and handed it to the ticket booth girl. He and Allison walked toward the Caprice, though Allison stopped him in the middle of the parking lot. The remaining cars were exiting, with Pee Wee Valley now closed. Allison said, Come here, Ulysses. She hugged him. He let his arms dangle at first. He'd seen only one black couple in the park, a middle-aged man and woman. He wasn't sure Allison should embrace him in this manner, in the absolute middle of a private lot where, actually, the few people in the last cars did see them and let their gawking linger. Allison clamped her hands around his head, brought it down gently, and kissed him on the cheek. Her kiss might as well have been planted on his lips for the three times she kept pecking his cheek. Okay, and that's a scene out of about a third to half of the way through the novel depicting the growing relationship, the burgeoning relationship of Allison Ross and Ulysses Weasel, who's Moondog's brother. So that relationship evolves in a, and continues to develop throughout the novel. I hope you've enjoyed these passages, these scenes I've read today out of Shine, out of Bedlam. Uh, I'm really happy about the novel. Um, it's been a long time coming to me, it seems. I've also been very thrilled to have this opportunity through the Library Foundation to have these to do these podcasts and create these podcasts and I'm thankful that you have listened to them and I appreciate that and I would hope too that you would pass the word down pass it to others to go back and listen to these other previous podcasts where the guests are incredibly varied and wonderful um, are tremendous writers in Cincinnati and Hamilton County um, I hope to be, be back with you soon in the meantime keep reading Thank you very much. You've been listening to Inside the Writer's Head podcast with Jeffrey Hillard, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2015-2016 Writer in Residence. This podcast was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or at the Reading and St. Bernard branch libraries. The podcast was mixed by Adam Baker. Special thanks to Kimber L. Fender, Sandy Bullock, Missy Dieters, Kate Lawrence, and Chris Rice, and to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Also, thanks to the band Amphibians for providing the song Sharkbait for this podcast. Learn more about the Writer-in-Residence and related events on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. There you can also read our Inside the Writer's Head blog and comment about this podcast. 
be sure to join us again next month for another Inside the Writer's Head podcast.